Today, we're speaking with Reverend Don Lewis. He is the first priest and chancellor of the Corellian tradition, the co-founder and chairman of Witch School, which is the first and largest online school of magic and witchcraft. Reverend Don is also the archpriest in the Fellowship of Isis, a Knight Grand Commander in the Noble Order of Tara, member of Triad Union, board member of the International Pagan Music Association. And in addition to all of these things, he has authored several books, produced several art sets, and during the 80s and 90s wrote or illustrated over 90 pagan magazines. As production head for Magic TV, Reverend Don has authored thousands of videos ranging from instructional videos to coverage of events such as the St. Louis Pagan Picnic, Pantheacon, and the Parliament of the World's Religions, as well as many interviews with many pagan leaders such as Olivia Robertson, Selena Fox, Oberon Zell, Raven Gramasi, and countless others. He's also a founding member of the Chicago Pagan Leadership Conference in the 1990s and a founding member and past president of the Northeast Florida Pagan Leadership Coalition today. Well, welcome, Reverend Don. Hello. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thank you for having me. And for those of you that are joining us on the podcast, Reverend Don is on the phone, so please forgive any uh, possible technical issues resulting from being on the phone. Uh, we greatly appreciate you uh, joining us today in any means possible, so I uh, just wanted to put that out there for our listeners. Thank you. You know, technolo technology can be a thing. It, <laughs> um, it's so advanced, and yet it still has bugs. Absolutely, absolutely. My, my theory on that is that it's better to get the information out, even if it's not perfect. And so um, if you look at particularly early videos on Magic TV, they're not always um, they're not always perfect, but we thought it was more important to actually get them done. And I think that um, I think that that helping that that communication throughout the community uh, is worth experiencing a few technical difficulties. Absolutely. I feel like documenting the historical significance of whatever is going on at that particular time. It doesn't need to be perfectly curated. It just needs to be documented. Absolutely. I used to have a, a good friend, Victoria Carlson, uh, in Chicago. She passed into spirit many years ago. But one of the things she would always point out is that there had been someone in the Chicago pagan community uh, through the 1970s and into the, I believe, into the early 80s, who was photographing all the events and had this huge catalog of photos of, of all the people who were active in that community then. And they died and all the photos went away and were never seen again. Oh, it's mm. terrible. Uh, it's very important, I think, going into the future that we do preserve these things. One of the things I think is happening um, that I think is very important to understand is people have the false idea that there is one monolithic pagan community, when in reality there are a number of interlaced communities who have their own different histories in many cases. Quite true. Um, which they may overlap, but they're not the same. And each one of them needs to be preserving its history. I, uh, I think we tend to oversimplify our history. Uh, absolutely. And that's been a bit of a problem that I feel that not just our community on whole has faced when it comes to dealing with the general public, because they only hear yeah. one tiny portion about who we are, what we represent, and what's going on. Uh, but it, it's also a problem for those who are not completely in with a, a good network within their local community and mm -hmm. 
they don't know what their own history is. I, I think, um, I think that's something I, I absolutely agree with. Um, and I think also I would say that there is presently no good accounting of the history of the wider community because everyone thinks their community was the only one or they speak that way and it's leading out others. We did, we did, uh, and you mentioned in the introduction, we did the pagan leadership conferences in Chicago in the 1990s. And we also did uh, Pagan Expo and the New Witches Ball. And oh, at their height, these were attracting hundreds upon hundreds of people. Uh, I think the largest one was about 2,000. And these people represented not one, but several pagan communities in the Chicago area. One of the things we found is that the established group that thought of themselves as the pagan community were not the only people showing up to these events. And many of the people who showed up representing temples had decades of history behind them. That was not it is. I think we lost you there for a second. Those technical issues. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We lost you at about the point where you're talking about the people from the temples. Okay. Yeah, you just cut out right at that point, so. Let me move slightly. Okay. If it makes a difference. My phone is very odd. I think I must be right on the edge of reception. Gotcha. Uh, but at least I have reception. Exactly. Uh, when we had our headquarters in, um, in Hoopston, Illinois, I had to lay my cell phone on the windowsill and step out of the building to receive a call. I've, I've so heard this is a huge like step that. up. <laughs> <laughs> so we were the, the place we lost sound was talking about um, how when we were doing events, we found people who came from outside the established the, the, um, the community. Correct. Correct. Would you like me to just start over on that thread? Uh, you, you can just jump in wherever you've. I think it was about the part where people from temples who had years of uh, history themselves. Okay. It, it was not uncommon at those events to meet people uh, who headed temples or groups in the Chicago area that we had never met before, that were not part of what considered itself the established pagan community, but who had been there for decades. Okay. Uh, they had just been, for better or worse, solitary uh, in their practice, even though they were groups. Uh, and what I saw from that is that there was not one, but several communities which started to come together, but never quite did. Mm -hmm. The was geographical, because Chicago is very large, but uh, other parts of it, I think, had to do with, with temperament and with coming from different backgrounds. Okay, I can um, see that. But it, uh, it was very interesting to see how few people who identified as pagan and or Wiccan were actually tied into that established community. Uh, it was a handful of, of relatively public temples who made up the, um, what we would call the community. And there were many, many other people that were mm. backgrounds. That is, that's very interesting. And, uh, being new to the path myself, it kind of gives me the insight to go off and look for other people that aren't necessarily the established community, as you mentioned. No, they're definitely there. 
And uh, here in Jacksonville, I currently am part of the Northeast Florida Pagan Coalition. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we, we see the same thing. Uh, the uh, Nephilim, as we fondly call it, is composed of a handful of groups that get along very well and work together well. But there are many other groups out there uh, that are not connected to us, don't wish to be connected to us, which is fine, um, and are not necessarily connected to each other. But they do sometimes come together in things like Pagan Pride Day. Okay. Flexible, you will see persons of people. Well, I think that... Oh, you're slipping out again. <laughs> can you hear me now? Yep, can you hear you now? Actually, now let me move to another part of the room. Okay. This might be better. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay. What was I saying? <laughs> uh, totally wrong. You're talking about um, how Pagan Pride Day is when people tend to come together. Oh. People that don't normally uh, come together might come together. Uh, yeah, here, here in Jacksonville, uh, Pagan Pride Day will attract thousands of people who don't necessarily take part in any other communal activities. And so I think people make a huge mistake in thinking that the community is just the, the part that they personally know and don't realize that there are actually many communities interwoven and some, sometimes not interwoven. And all those are, are part of this movement. Uh, I've many times heard people talk about um, how everyone did this or everyone did that. But, you know, I was around at the time and not doing that and know perfectly well it isn't quite what happened. Um, and I think that one of the best things that could happen in the community is for people to realize there are people they did not know, people they do not know, and things going on that um, are not necessarily plugged into the part of the community they are in and to be open to learning about that. Um, I think a lot of the fighting of the 90s came from, from this situation. Uh, the identity wars. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, because people, the advent of the internet allowed a lot more communication and brought some of these disparate communities together who, in many cases, didn't really know that much about each other. And um, they didn't always react well. Hmm. Oh, the spirits of the undead. They're so funny. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, man. Um, okay. <laughs> so I would like for you to tell us a, just briefly, for a lot of listeners, they're not familiar with the Corellian tradition. So what can you tell the people who are unfamiliar, what can you tell them about the Corellian tradition? Uh, the Corellian tradition originated as a familial tradition. Uh, it identifies as Wiccan in the sense of the wider eclectic Wiccan community. Uh, what you would call it before the 70s is open to debate. I don't particularly want to get into that debate at the moment, but uh, familial tradition, I think, is the suitable term. Okay. Uh, it has influences from many different backgrounds, uh, and what distinguishes it, in my view, uh, one, it's, it's very much universalist in its outlook. But we also put a huge emphasis on shadow work and self-examination, on understanding why things are done, not just what is done. 
and on approaching um, psychic and magical arts in a very systematic way uh, that examines how and why they work, at least from this perspective. Uh, we are all over the world. We have um, more structure than some traditions. We have a, um, a first priest and priestess. We have a chancellor. We have a council of elders. We have a Lutan council. Uh, the Council of Elders currently includes members from the U.S., Spain, South Africa, um, and England, the U.K. Hmm. And, um, and uh, I want to say also Mexico, but the, the, the member from Mexico is currently in Spain, so <laughs> I was gonna it's say. debatable. Um, but, um, so we, we have one from Mexico, one from Spain, but the one from Mexico is visiting the one in Spain. <laughs> but uh, the Spanish-speaking world is probably our largest growth area at the moment. Uh, we have many temples in Spain. We have many temples throughout Central and South America. And, of course, we also have many temples in the English-speaking world. Um, we, we have a fair number in Africa. Oh. Hmm. Um, and we also have members in places like Kenya and Ghana and Nigeria, where we don't have temples, but we do have members. Uh, we are very um, much of the opinion that integrating your, your, your traditional practices is an appropriate thing to do. We have a saying that Corellianism is a lens through which all things can be seen. Um, so we are very much universalist in our outlook. We were influenced early in our existence by the Universalist Church, um, which is not the same as the Unitarian Universalist Church, but it's similar. And um, we're also very big on the ancestors. Um, we believe very much that the ancestors are still a living part of the tradition. And with the, the uh, tradition ancestors, the, the uh, leadership of the tradition now in spirit, we talk to them uh, on a very regular basis. and. Um, at a ceremony called Lustration, we also have a public oracle of the ancestors, which is for the entire tradition. Um, but we also encourage people to speak with their individual ancestors as well. Uh, so those are, are most of the things I think I would say. Okay. Uh, in terms of things like uh, ritual and the ritual year, we're not particularly different from uh, anyone else, I don't think. But some of our philosophy can be very different. And that reflects the different origin and different development that we, we have experienced. And for example, we're, we're still experiencing that development. For example, if you look at our temples in the Philippines, we have two temples in the Philippines. They heavily involve traditional Filipino um, philosophy and religion and healing practices. So if you were to go there, you would have a very different experience than if you were to go to our temple in Cape Town in South Africa or in... Um, any, any of the several temples in Spain, for example. Uh, we have one temple in Mexico that uh, involves traditional Aztec ideas because the person heading it is of that descent. Uh, so it's, it's in its way a very valuable way of approaching it. Uh, it's certainly not rich No, we're losing you a little bit there. Getting a little muffled. Okay. There no, we go. better. Uh, <laughs> It's very odd because I don't have to move to have that. How's this? That's good. We'll cross our fingers. Okay. Okay. 
But as I was saying, we're, we're, we're very definitely not rigid uh, in our ideas. Well, in my personal experience with those of you that I've met from the Corellian tradition, I absolutely love your group. The Thank individuals you. that make up uh, the various areas within the tradition are some of the friendliest, uh, personable, kind individuals I've ever met. I very much appreciate you saying that. I, I'm very, I'm very proud of the people that we have, uh, and we try to be very friendly and accepting. Yeah. One, one of the things that we do is we we have very open doors. It shows. Uh, so it's very easy to enter. Um, but people who people people who are perhaps not um, not as friendly usually don't end up staying. Uh, we, we, we value getting along, not getting along at all costs, but we, we do value people being nice people. Um, so if you come in and start insulting people, you're not going to last. Well, and that's for the best. Yeah. Uh, weren't they running the hospitality suite at Pentecon? Or there was yeah. a Corellian's hospitality suite, I thought. Was there a Corellian hospitality suite at Pantheacon? I don't believe so. Okay. Although there could have been, I wouldn't necessarily know, because if a local temple were doing it, they wouldn't necessarily uh, have to tell me, but I don't, I'm not aware of that. Okay. I, I, it, it's been several years since, I, since we've sent um, a group to Pantheacon, but we do have local people. I did not um, make it up to the hospitality suites much, except the uh, caucus of the... Uh, the uh, People of Color Caucus. The Pagans of Color Caucus. Oh, that's right. Uh, other than that, I don't think I went, I don't think I, I wandered around very much because I wasn't walking very well. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm pretty sure I ran into at least a group of Corellians. They might have been just chilling out in the hospitality oh, okay. suite. Mm -hmm. But they were super that's awesome. entirely possible. Thank you. We, um... You know, we have people who go, well, I mean, we, 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 have, we have thousands of people, so they could show up at any given event. And, uh, that's true. That's true. Not make a report to me about it. Although I, 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 I love it if they will uh, do videos from the events. Um, Paganicon uh, in Minnesota, we had one of our priesthood, uh, Moon, Moonraven Yuvantas, who did live video from there, uh, which was very cool. Um, and he comes from originally the Hellenic Alexandrian tradition, which has nothing to do with Alexandrian witchcraft. It has to do with Hellenic, um, Hellenic religion, uh, but is also Corellian because we're, again, we're very, um, very, very universal that way. Um, you can come from many different backgrounds you, and we look at, we look at what we do as being something that you add into your background not necessarily that you switch out for. Many people do, but they don't have to. They, they, they can bring forward the good from wherever they come from. And um, so, you, so you see a lot of individuality. And the truth is, you look at any world religion, and you do see that individuality, but it isn't always encouraged by the religion itself. Mm. Um, if you were to look at... Um, well, I, th I think any world religion in different countries and different parts of the world, you'll see huge variation uh, versus um, 
what you might read in a book about it. Sure. Uh, we, we acknowledge this and encourage it where, where others, other kinds of religions discourage it. But we believe very much in personal gnosis. We believe very much in, um, in the value of, of difference and growth. And we've certainly learned some wonderful things from people who've come to the tradition, bringing their own ideas with them, which um, have often been incorporated over the years. So that's one reason there are so many different uh, influences in the tradition. Uh, one of the things I found most interesting was traveling to uh, our temples in the Southern Hemisphere, where the directions and, um, and so forth are reversed, mm. and where the wheel is reversed. Of course. And um, when I was doing radio ritual, which I was doing up until last year, probably will be doing again soon, but I, I always made it a point to incorporate both the bot into the radio ritual in the knowledge that people were listening in both hemispheres. And what I found was that, that for me, this very much um, expanded my view of both Tabat. So we would do, for example, Samhain and Beltane at the same time mm -hmm. and find the, uh, the commonality between them within the ritual. And um, I found that, for me, a very enlightening experience. Although I will have to say that having traveled between these two extremes, I sometimes, sometimes mess my directions up. <laughs> but what are you going to do? Uh, I was going to say, that, that can be understood. <laughs> it... Um, and, you know, we, we, all, we also tend to have a very laid-back attitude toward things. One of the things I tell people is if you make a mistake in ritual, don't call attention to it, just correct it. Right. Um, most people aren't going to notice anyway. Or if they notice, um, as it, if you correct it and move forward, it's not going to stand out to them the way it will if you stop and call attention to it. Right. Years ago, I attended a ritual um, of a temple I won't name although they no longer exist anyway. Uh, and they were, they were a Unitarian congregation. Okay. Um, not, not a cups congregation, but an actual Unitarian congregation with a pagan theme. Hmm. But they were doing a, a Norse ritual and, uh, or, or what, what they, what, what a Norse themed ritual, let's put it that way. And they started to cast the circle, and the priestess realized that she was going in the wrong direction. Stopped, said, oh, I made a mistake. I should go in the other direction. Turned around and did that. Um, now, this particular ritual was being attended by a reporter, which they knew. And what do you think ended up in the story? Oh. Um, had she merely gone around the wrong way one, turned around and done it the right way, nobody would ever have been the wiser. Um, they might have thought it eccentric, uh, but, they, but, but it would not have called attention to it in the same way. Correct. Um, and she was a wonderful priestess, and I've seen a lot of people do this. I won't, I won't even say I've never done it myself, but, you know, it's better to just quietly correct it. And I think, I think in general this is true in life, that um, to quietly go about your business makes more sense than, than to um, put an explanation point behind everything. So, as I understand things, you've just celebrated your 40th year with the Corellians. Yep. And they... As of February 6th of this year. Oh, okay. My 40th year as first priest. As first priest. Yep. All right. 
I, I didn't realize it was as first priest, but that makes a little more sense. Yes. So how? Um, that's a long time. Yeah. <laughs> that's a. That's all. Well, yeah, that's quite a bit of time, and I, I can't say that I know a lot of people who have held a position of that rank for that long. Um, but how was the celebration? It was wonderful. Um, and we have an adventure page devoted to it at Corellian.com, including videos. But um, people were very kind. Uh, I received a lot of lovely gifts, um, including an original song, oh. which was very cool, and some original performances. Um, it's the second song that's been written about me. The first one was Reverend Don's Mystic Slender Ponytail um, by the... Um, the Vigilance of Astro Goth, I think. It's okay. been a long time. But this one is by John, uh, Reverend John Anastasio, and it was much more um, understandable because the first one was, was I believe, called Thrash Metal. So, although oh. there may have been words, you could not tell. <laughs> <laughs> but it was very cool. Um, it was very interesting. Uh, it was punctuated... Um, by a number of events, some of some of them, of, of, well, the actual the actual ritual to celebrate the 40th anniversary was was, was beautiful. Um, Lady Crystal, the first priestess, who uh, was also celebrating her 40th anniversary, and um, Lady Stephanie, the current first well, they're both current first priestesses. Lady Stephanie is the active first priestess. Lady Crystal is retired. Oh, okay. But they, they both were uh, in the ritual. It was wonderful. Lady Stephanie had this magnificent cake that was presented. Um, it was just a beautiful weekend. Uh, we, um, one of the things we did was we placed a tombstone for my mother, uh, who um, had not had a tombstone until now, although there was a family tombstone. And so we had a gathering at the graves of the ancestors, uh, which was very beautiful. Uh, we also, at that time, literally as we were beginning the ceremony, uh, heard that the retired first elder, Lady Bitterwind, had passed away, oh. which was a bit of a shock. Um, although in other ways, not entirely. Um, I mean, she, she had lived a long, full life, but we were not expecting it that weekend. And um, I regard her as, as a sister. And I have to say that it, it's, it's been... Diff difficult to have her cross, although I'm sure that she is very happy where she is. Uh, but, you know, 40 years, a lot of people that I've known have crossed. Um, at this time, there are only two living Corellians um, oh. who were members of the tradition 40 years ago when Lady Crystal and I became first priestess and first priest. Lady Crystal herself and one other person um, by the name of Mary, I, I uh, will just give her first name because she's not um, not a public figure. And otherwise, everybody's gone, which is pretty sober. Um, but, but it was a wonderful weekend and um, wonderful celebrations, mostly caught on film. So, yeah. Wonderful. We're very big on filming. We're very big on photographing, very big on filming for a couple of reasons. Of which the uh, the one that well part of it part of it is to um, to 
to document things that are happening, and part of it is to share it with people who cannot physically be there. Um, many of our people are not able to come to um, events like the illustration or to other events we cover, like the St. Louis Pagan Picnic, for example. Uh, but we feel that it's a, um, a service to them to provide them video from these events so that they, they can see the community. Um, when we started the school, one of the big reasons, which is also one of the big reasons for all of this filming, is that we saw so many people were geographically or socially isolated to where they could not join the wider community. Um, and we wanted to help them to feel connected and to have access to the resources of the community. Um, and we still are motivated by that desire now. Oh, I was just thinking about um, all the times that I've, uh, either the photos that I've seen or the videos that I've watched. Uh, I love that your, your group does that. For those that are on the outside, it gives us an opportunity to uh, learn something new or um, at least feel like I've shared in the experience to some degree. Thank you. That, 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 that's exactly, exactly why we do it. Um, and it helps people, helps people in our tradition to see the people who are in positions um, that they might be dealing with, such as the dean of mentors at the school or various priesthood who are um, administering various programs. Um, and through the other events, we cover various authors and um, region and, and, uh, and other leadership from other traditions that they might have no way to see otherwise, especially when we started. Um, it, um, people, I think, forget in the day of the internet that there was a time that in, unless you could physically go and see these people, uh, all you knew was their written word. Right. And, you know, when you actually see someone and hear them speak, um, it gives you, a, in some ways, a much fuller picture of who they are. Um, and I, I, would, I would give as an example Olivia Robertson, and I'm very pleased, very, very proud to have been able to interview her a number of times. We do have some that have never actually been uploaded. Oh. Um, but um, Olivia was the co-founder and longtime leader of the Fellowship of Isis. And if you read her, her written words, you see that she was a very loving person. You see that she was a very well-educated person who drew on a vast array of knowledge of, um, of different religions in creating the Isian liturgy, for example. But I don't know that you get as full a picture as when you hear her speak of what a wonderful sense of humor she had, uh, how extraordinarily kind she was. She was. Um, and uh, she was just a lovely, lovely person and had the most delightful accent. Um, and I think that to be able to see her gives a person a fuller idea of her identity, which I, I think is valuable. Um, and I think that's true for anyone. And so a number, a number of people we have interviewed at Magic TV, there, there's also a huge uh, audio archive that um, I had at Magic TV. And a number of these people, like Don Michael Craig, Isaac Bonowitz, Olivia Robertson herself, Ted Andrews, people that we have interviewed are no longer living. Right. Uh, there will not be more interviews with these people. 
and I'm very happy to to say that we have some interviews with them. And some of them were interviewed by many other people as well. And some of them, uh, we may be the only interview in, in video format, particularly some of the local leaders. Um, so there you go. Well, that's actually what inspired us to start this podcast. Was oh, wonderful. Yeah, it was recognizing that we were losing a lot of the history of our greater community through the individuals that have either bared witness or participated in organization of, you know, different groups or events uh, or even, um, you know, times, moments where the community came together or uh, had to face conflict together. And I didn't mm -hmm. want to lose some of that history, that oral history from those that were there. Uh, so, and, you know, sometimes those people are the only ones who know what really happened. Exactly. And uh, sometimes even if it's written, it's only part of the story and you don't necessarily feel the intensity or the gravity of the situation if the written mm -hmm. word is interpreted uh, at, a, at a less intense um, perspective. That's uh, very true. So I uh, actually, Tyler and I were sitting, we were uh, manning the booth for Ardentane while Amber mm -hmm. and Asriel K went to do their uh, presentation and I was sort of looking around and I, I, I wish I could remember who it was but somebody had passed just before we had gone up there it was I for, it was one of the authors and I can't remember her name right uh was it um it was in February perhaps Raven Grimasi no he didn't pass until oh. afterwards because we were I was about to contact him okay. in the interview um and then he passed and so that kind of you know, took me back because I wasn't expecting that. But um, I, I don't remember which one it was, if it was uh, Eden McCoy or there was like a whole bunch of, like there was a trio of people that had passed. Yeah, three that passed. In a very short succession, three. yeah. And mm -hmm. then uh, I remember that uh, a family member, it was uh, uh, the, the, uh, the founder of Pantheacon, her daughter had passed away the week before. Oh, I, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and so, I mean, talk about intensity. You know, you're, it's yes, a more Pantheacon is about to happen and to lose one of your children. Uh, just, there was so much loss going on, and I was, it just had me thinking. So that's how the podcast. I'm, I'm very sorry to hear that, but you're absolutely right. This is why this sort of thing is important. Because, you know, so, people, people don't, well, sometimes you can plan when you're going to die, but <laughs> usually you don't. Most often you if don't. If you have an illness, you might be able to um, set everything in order, but um, it doesn't always work that way. And, you know, the, the last, for many people, I think the last thing they would think about is putting down their recollections um, while fighting a horrible illness. Um, so getting it, getting it when, when, uh, when you can get it, I think is a very, very good thing. Okay. Yeah. One of the people that uh, I had the pleasure of, of um, interviewing was Donna Cole Schultz, who is also known as Lady Morda, and she was a um, the head of the Temple of Sacred Stones in Chicago. We have a number of radio interviews with her, but there was only one video piece. Um, it was not an interview; it was a, it was a speech, but it was very very interesting. I hope one day to get that transferred into a digital format and get it up somewhere, but uh, currently it's in storage. Mm. But I don't know. 
I don't know how many interviews there were with, with Donna Cole Schultz. Um, and so I think that the fact that these exist is, is, a, is a very good thing. Uh, she was active from the, well, she was active from, I want to say, I want to say it was about 1962. Um, she had been initiated originally in an American group uh, of mostly very young people, later went on to become Gardnerian. Um, and one of the things she pointed out is that that first group that she had been part of, she felt was, was every bit as effective as later groups she was part of. Um, but as far as, as far as, uh, I know they did, they did not, um, they did not last indefinitely, which is something that happens to a lot of groups, but it was fascinating to hear her speak, for example, about that era of the sixties. Uh, for me, I made my dedication in 1975 and can't really speak through personal experience to anything non-Corellian before that. Okay. Um, but I can speak to, to what I know from people that I know who live that. Um, but personally, my journey began, um, my priestly journey began in 1975. And um, it should be noted that when I, when I became first priest of the Corellian tradition, I was literally the only person uh, who, who was both eligible and willing to take the, the job. So. Um, I, uh, and, and there was also, um, there, there was more going on, but it, it was an interesting time. Well, it was the seventies. <laughs> yeah. Now when you say eligible and willing, I'm guessing there were other people who were eligible and weren't willing. Uh, there were other people who they would have had, to, I think they would have had to do things to become fully eligible, but they could have, gotcha. but they didn't they, they really were not following a priestly path. Okay. At the time that I became first priest, we were still a familial tradition, and so you would have had to have, had to have been a member of the family. Gotcha. And okay. I was the only one willing to uh, to do it, and also the only one that um, I think the only one the Council of Elders, as they were then, would have accepted. Oh. For political reasons that uh, would take too long to go into, but are discussed in I think the first degree book. Uh, okay. There was a coming together of two different lines, and um, basically, I was the representative of my uh, of the line that I belong to, which is the Maybelline line. Um, and Lady Crystal was the representative of the Lewisine line, which may sound counterintuitive considering my surname, but it's a long story. <laughs> um, and so, it, it was partly also a political uh, a political solution. All right, and. Um, I was quite young, and I've spent literally, literally my entire adult life in this role, which has the interesting effect that I've certainly, cer the, the, the tradition certainly reflects my influence, and my life certainly reflects its influence. I don't think anyone else will ever be in, in quite the same position again. Hmm. Now, are you responsible for turning this tradition from being strictly within the family line to moving it to a global organization? Yes and no. Uh, Lady Crystal, who, is the, who was the first priestess and is now, as I say, first priestess retired, uh, officially is the person who made that decision, but, but everybody was involved who was there at the time. But in terms of the mechanics of it, um, 
basically myself and, and Edward are the people who made it global. Right. And we did that um, we did that through a lot of different techniques, but mostly just being willing to do it, being willing to be seen, being willing to make the teachings public. But we realized back, back in 1979, which is when that decision was actually made, uh, we realized that there was no survival for us if we did not open those doors wider. Um, the family just was not producing people to populate um, the tradition as it had been. And already there were people um, that we were looking to as adopted members to continue. Uh, so we decided that, that we should become a public tradition. Mm. Um, but as I say, it was actually Lady, Lady Crystal's official decision. Okay. And then um, Edward came into the tradition um, around 1990, and that supercharged everything um, because he does that. But uh, um, it, uh, through the 80s, I was very much involved in promoting the tradition, uh, but also the community in general through writing and artwork. Um, but it was the changes in technology in the 90s and, and the new century that really made the difference and the fact that we were willing to embrace those. I will give you guys credit for embracing technology, especially during the 80s and early 2000s, because I knew so many organizations that saw it as just a fad, oh, this isn't going to go anywhere. Uh, but the ones that really kind of took to it really did mm -hmm. help document things that were happening during those times. Uh, on the technology front, I mean, there's a site called Wayback Machine, and you can yeah. see the major businesses that did have web presences back then, and you can see when each one of the major players came online, their first attempts, and it's it's interesting to have that ability, and I think it's really awesome that you guys embrace that aspect. Thank you. A lot of work. We, we felt it was very important. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I just know that a lot of Pagan traditions are against it for various reasons. Mm -hmm. um, I understand some of their motivations, but I feel that as time marches on, the more secretive they remain, the most likely that we're going to lose their history and mm -hmm. they may be lost completely in just a few more years if they don't, if they're unable to maintain their members or whatever, and their impact well, on the local community could be lost. You're absolutely right. And you know, if you, if you look at some of those communities, you'll notice that seeing a face under the age of 50 is very rare. And that is not a recipe for surviving into the future. Uh, we were very concerned about survival. Uh, the Corellian tradition nearly came to an end um, in, in the 70s. And that decision to become public was part of coming out of that. Mm. Um, we realized that if we did not bring new people in, as I said earlier, there just weren't enough family members to continue. Um, there was going to be just a couple of people sitting around the table. Uh, in an earlier era, when people had lots of children, um, although the, the familial tradition, it, 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 familial traditions are, are a whole different animal in some ways. Um, but the, the other thing that I wanted to say, where, where did it go? It's interesting as you, as you get older and you have to look for these things. Right. 
Um, At least you I have that experience. Say, oh, I know what it was. <laughs> One of the things we have is, is, is we talk to the ancestors. And all of the way back, they were saying what was going to happen, that, that we would become a global tradition, that we would be, we would be all over the world. And um, this very much influenced my thinking, um, even though it didn't seem particularly possible at the time. Um, and one of the stories we often tell uh, regarding Edward, he got a reading from a woman by the name of Rosemary Fletcher, who was a good friend of, of both of ours, and possibly the best psychic reader I've ever met. Um, and she could read anything and did. But she did a reading for him where she said that he would be publishing a daily newspaper seen around the world and um, within, ten, within 10 years of the reading. And although the internet existed at that time, most people really weren't aware of it. Mm-hmm. And so the assumption was that we were talking about a, um, a paper in print. Um, but it turned out to be, to be dead on when the new technology came in, because within 10 years, the daily spell was going to the whole world. Right. Um, and it was a daily, uh, in effect, a daily newspaper. Uh, before that, in the 90s, Edward and I were, were publishing Psychic Chicago magazine and later the Roundtable magazine. In the 80s, um, I was publishing the Wheel of Hecate magazine, and I was illustrating or writing for um, 90 others. Uh, a huge number of magazines, but I had, I had time and, um, and most of them were only too happy to have an artist willing to give them illustrations. Um, but because of that, I remember magazines and to some extent communities, many people don't remember were ever there. Uh, I don't know who remembers uh, harvest magazine today. It was a big deal at the time. Um, of course, everybody does remember Circle, uh, which I think is the first, the first to have published me uh, in that sense. Uh, but there is also uh, the unicorn from the wrong tree, which might still be going, I don't know. Um, the magical unicorn messenger, seasonal silver, stardust salamander, uh, which was particularly focused on the southeastern community. Okay. Uh, and featured photos of events that, that were taking place in the 80s. Uh, they, and they gave out an award for excellence in pagan journalism, um, which a number of people received, which I thought was really cool. And I've got one uh, from 1987, uh, which I believe is currently in storage with many of my other things. But um, it's very interesting. I, I, I received that award the same year that, um, that Grey Cat also received one. And um, through that, we became very good friends. And... Um, she, pub- she published the Chrome Papers, for which I did a number of illustrations. I was one of the few people at that time doing illustrations uh, of diverse people as opposed to Barbie goddesses um, because I believe very much in representing the, the whole range of humanity. Um, but um, most of the, those publications are now long gone. In many cases, the people who are doing them are long gone. Um, and although they still exist in various morgues around the country, very few people, I think, have any knowledge of the vast uh, array of knowledge and information that these, these magazines contained, um, including about the history of the community, um, often from points of view that are not represented now. 
which I think is, is, I think it's very sad, but I think it's a common effect in our community. It seems like there's a constant disconnect um, from one generation to the next, except in specific traditions. Uh, but I think most people, if you were, if you were to ask most pagans today, I, I think they would be surprised to find that there was a thriving pagan press in the 1980s. And going back into the 1970s, I think that they would be surprised to learn which were the dominant traditions at the time. Um, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> I mean, you got my interest. I, I'm new to the path, as uh, I mentioned, and I don't get to truly experience a lot of the history except what I can find in books and through meeting new people. I've been very lucky uh, to have been introduced to Yvonne when I did, and this was many years ago before I even figured out what path I was going down, uh, but her connections have given me new insight, and we're going to be going to uh, the Covenant of Goddess Mary Meet is... Yeah, we're going to uh, Mary Meet mm. Grand Council next week. Or this week. Oh, yeah, very cool. <laughs> we, we drive out in a couple days, actually. Uh, but there's some classes there that I'm very interested in. One of them is actually revolving around uh, pagan millennials. Oh. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, hey, I, I'm... That would be you. That That's me. You know, I, I'm on the older age range of the millennials, but I'm still a millennial. Bag habit. I'm right on that cusp of being uh, get off my lawn, but hey. <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, I, I'm I'm really wanting to go to that because I'm wanting to see what other people. You, you mentioned a lot of those traditions that are more secretive don't have anybody under the age of fifty, mm -hmm. and I'm curious to see what other people that are my age and younger, because I'm assuming I'm going to be the oldest one in the room. Um, <laughs> like, they, they, they literally have an age cutoff, and I just barely make it. But that, oh being, my. that being said, um, I, I, I'm curious to see what other people have learned and where they're going, because, you know, I'm just starting down this path. And having access to people like you and some of the other people that we plan to interview is just a great resource for us so i want to thank you for that thank you it's um it, it, it it's a fascinating journey and i think that, that you will very much enjoy taking it and as as you interview more people what you will find and i think what you will find um is both a great commonality and also a huge difference in their individual experiences mm-hmm and putting those two things together may give you an accurate picture of the history of the community. And I think that's what we're really looking for here is to get everybody's story out there, not just necessarily the story of their organization or their group, but their personal stories as well. So mm -hmm. I, I would love to hear any bits of information that you'd like to share about your personal path along this way that you'd be willing to share with us <laughs> oh goodness um yes I, I i i could probably think of something that would qualify for that um the first one is that throughout the 80s i was active in the pagan press 
Okay. I was never a festival person. I still am not a festival person, although I do, I do go to certain events. Um, I, I enjoy local events. I'm not, I, but I'm not, um, I've never been a camper. Um, so the camping festivals have not, not been my, my stomping ground, so to speak. But the Pagan Press was, was a huge thing for me. And I, I happened to form very close friendships with a number of other people who were um, publishers of those magazines, uh, such as Pete Pathfinder Davis from the Aquarian Tabernacle Church, who was a huge mentor to me uh, because he was also a tradition, had an extremely practical and knowledgeable in what he was doing. Uh, and I would say that, that he taught me a great deal that became very valuable later. Um, at the time that I knew him, our tradition was still very small. Uh, the things that I, I learned from him didn't have a lot of application to us. But, you know, 10 years later, they, they did. Uh, and he was a wonderful person. Um, I found him very wise and very helpful and very kind and just a person that I'm very privileged to have known. Uh, also, Grey Cat. We, we, Grey Cat, Paul Bayerl, Pete Pathfinder Davis, Grey Cat. In those years, I talked to at least once a month, sometimes in, in some cases more frequently, by telephone, because that's what people did, because there was no internet. Uh, computers were, computers at that time, for ordinary people were glorified word processors. Uh, in fact, many people were actually using word processors, and I don't know that people today would even, young people today would even know what that means. Um, <laughs> But you'd pick up the telephone and you would call and you'd get them or you wouldn't. And you'd talk for an hour or two hours or three hours, which considering I'm not big on the phone today shows you what 30 years will change. But um, um, I learned a lot from, from each of those people um, and from interacting with many other people. But uh, I once did a vlog on people who have been major influences on me and Pete Pathfinder Davis and Olivia Robertson are the two biggest ones outside of my family. Mm. Uh, my mother and Lady Crystal were also very, very big influences uh, in terms of how to run things, in terms of how to behave, in terms of um, what a tradition needs to survive. Um, and I found that both Pete and Lady Olivia had very, very similar views. And what all of these people had in common was practicality, good sense, uh, and a willingness to look at what works versus what doesn't. I've known a lot of people who will put abstractions above practicality. And, you know, there are certain cases where that might be important, but you, 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 you need to consider it. Um, a lot of those traditions that don't have anyone under 50 are the ones that consistently put the abstractions over the practicalities and won't be, will not look at, for example, what the current younger generation um, is experiencing and is looking for spiritually is not the same as the generation of the 1960s. Um, and to interact with them, you need to understand that. Mm -hmm. um, and it can be hugely different. Um, the generation of the 1960s were caught up in the sexual revolution. Um, and a lot of what they a lot of what some of them came to this movement for was to escape the strictures of a society which has not had those strictures for a, a, a couple of generations now. So people aren't looking to escape what isn't there. Right. Um, you don't have to, um, you, 
not only do you not have to be pagan to, to embrace your sexual identity, in some cases it, it, it's actually problematic because um, some of them are having trouble with, with people's identity. Mm. Um, the Corellian tradition is very accepting of the idea that people are who they are. Um, and I, I'm very, very proud that we have a very diverse membership um, in terms of ethnicity, in terms of um, how people identify in terms of, of their sexual orientation and gender and so forth. Uh, we encourage that diversity um, very strongly. And I, I think that um, I think that, that that's a very important part of Corellianism, that uh, we, we believe that people should be who they are. Um, that's we also believe in good behavior, <laughs> but you could, you, but that's, that's another story. We, we don't let, we, 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 um, actually I saw a thread on, uh, one of our hundred odd Corellian Facebook pages, um, <laughs> this morning, I believe where one of our priestesses remarked that, um, she had just come to the chapter in third degree where we talk about how clergy should behave. And she really wished it had been in first degree because she thought everybody should read this, which by the way, I agree with, but I didn't realize how necessary it was when I was writing the first degree. Um, but we have in both second and third degree, quite a, quite a bit of recommendations for how you want to behave as clergy. Um, in, re in regard to the fact that you're representing your tradition, perhaps your temple, if you have, if you belong to one, uh, even just yourself, you want to, you want to consider uh, the effect you're having on other people. And um, so when I, when I say um, we, we believe strongly in good behavior, uh, generally speaking, we do that, that you should be polite. You should be sensible. You should pick your fights. Uh, picking your fights is certainly not an official Corellian doctrine, but it, it's something I believe strongly in because some things some things are, are, are worth fighting to the death for. Others are not worth your time. And I, I find a lot of people in the community cannot tell the difference between these things, um, at least historically. But, um, it, um, but that, that has to do with how we, we look at certain things. For example, um, the subject of ritual. For, for in some traditions, ritual form is vitally important. Uh, we tend to look at, at ritual as only the external representation of what's going on inside. What's going on inside is vitally important, but how you're, how you're expressing it externally is not so important in our view. Um, and so if you do something a little differently than, than the person next to you, that really isn't um, an issue in our eyes as long as, long as you're having the same spiritual effect. So the, the famous uh, chestnut about arguing over quarter colors is not something that I would imagine that some, something certainly I would hope that Corellians would not engage in. Uh, if someone's using different quarter colors, isn't that really cool? Um, it's nice to see how other people do things. Mm. And maybe you might even want to do it yourself. That's, that's a, I, I haven't heard the quarter co color chestnut, but I'm, uh, I can piece it together. <laughs> It might be dated now. In the yeah. 90s, that was a huge issue. Now it's still an issue for some groups. <laughs> it's, it's still around. I'm I don't, sorry to hear that. But not it, it depends on, uh, I think, a lot of people's backgrounds and the strictness of their 
traditional yeah. backgrounds. Um, I've had the fortune of being in three different traditions already um, mm -hmm. as, as a high priestess and each one had a different level of strictness and how we would conduct or perform. And mm -hmm. uh, my current tradition is very secret, uh, but also uh, very set in how the tradition is to be expressed. And I get it. And that's, that's how they want things to be. And mm -hmm. I'm not there to change that. That's not my job. My job is to no. learn from them and, uh, you know, embrace the practice as best as possible and, and do the responsibilities that are expected of me. And, you know, they have, they have every right to that for themselves. True. And it may be exactly the perfect thing for them. My tradition is very, very different than that. Um, right. And part, part of that is ancestral going back to the familial tradition where you basically adopted whatever worked. Uh, part of it is due to Lady Crystal, who um, I consider to, to have been the best possible teacher um, because she was very laid back in these things. Uh, one of the stories I like to tell is that when I was studying, um, study, studying the, the ideas that we have in third degree, some of them are very... We deal with things like the idea of probabilities, differing timelines, time magic, uh, other things that are very different from, what, from the ordinary physical world that one perceives. When I first started studying these things, I had difficulty with some of these. And Lady Crystal said, that's okay. Let's not worry about this right now. We'll come back to it later. And that's just what she did. She waited about six months, brought the subject up again, and I had no difficulty understanding it then. Um, there are other traditions who would have said, no, you must learn this right now. Um, that's not how we work. Um, our attitude is that you know, sometimes, sometimes you just have to relax and be patient, and things will take their course. Uh, and I found that with a lot of ideas that can be difficult at first sight, if you just wait a little while, they will make sense. And part of that, I believe, is because your higher self is working with your guides and integrating these ideas. Um, or if you prefer, prefer, you could say your subconscious is working on them. Um, and sometimes also you can kind of bring them in from the side in ways that are less challenging uh, in working with a person. But we definitely are not of the point of view that if you're having trouble with the hill, that you must do it just now. You can take it at your own pace. Mm -hmm. and, you know, if it takes you 10 years to get that degree, that doesn't matter. As long as, as, long as you get, get the degree and get what you need from it, you have done well. Uh, not everyone moves at the same pace. That's and if true. you happen to go through it, um, if, you, if you go through it in the year end of the day, that's lovely too. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we emphasize is that just because you get the degree, it doesn't mean you're done learning. Um, either the materials in the degree or other things that will come to you, because these things deepen over time. And, um, you know, I've, I've had people say that they've gone back uh, and reworked the the earlier degrees that they had gotten and found much more in it than they saw at the time. Uh, and, you know, I find that complete, a completely normal and uh, appropriate thing because your, your consciousness has expanded during that time. True. And one of the things I learned from Lady Bitterwind uh, was the idea of patterning. And I use that a great deal in putting our ideas down on paper. Uh, I also used a lot in my artwork. And that is the idea that you bring in ideas and symbolism 
without calling attention to them and just let people notice and absorb it. Um, so, and I, I tend to believe that allegorical de depiction, whether particularly in artwork, but also in writing, is, is one of the highest achievements. Um, we'll, say, we'll say one of the highest achievements of pagan thought. We could say human thought. Um, because it allows the person to absorb through their higher self what their conscious mind might reject. Um, and therefore, I have often, often used visual representations as a kind of teaching as well. And I think that's a lot of what happens with systems such as the tarot, for example. It speaks to you not just on the level of your thinking mind, but on the level of your higher self. I agree. And I think a lot of people ignore that, the fact that the higher self is also active uh, through the whole process of learning. And um, I think sometimes people give up earlier than they should, uh, and in fact should not at all, uh, because the conscious, the conscious mind hits a stumbling block. Um, so our attitude is when the conscious mind hits a stumbling block, be patient, it will go away just give it some time. I find that usually that's what happens. In fact, I find that, that be patient and let things unfold is often the best advice for any situation. Not always, but often. Well, I, I, can, I can attest to being impatient at times and not wanting to move on and then finally saying, okay, I need to do something else and then having a eureka moment and coming back, mm -hmm. oh, this makes total sense now. It's, exactly. it's happened to me more times than I care to count. So it, it, what you're saying definitely strikes a chord and makes sense. So if in the future you find yourself acting as a teacher in these matters, and you find that your students get hung up on certain things, remember this and mm -hmm. give them time to get past it, and I think you'll be very pleased with the results. Yeah. I think you'll also see that there are a, a lot of people who do not follow that advice. Mm -hmm. um, which I think is unfortunate, but you know, everybody does it in their own way. Right. And I also know, think that's one of the reasons certain traditions don't have anyone under 50, but that's, that's <laughs> a whole other opinion. You know, there's also, uh, you know, going through like a tradition, learning a tradition as a student and you, you gloss over certain things and you observe, you absorb other things. When you come back at, at the tradition as a teacher and go through that process of teaching the students what you once mm -hmm. went through. Now you're looking at it with a brand new set of eyes. You've are, the, the base layer of what you learn as a student, you already get, but looking at it mm -hmm. from, from a teacher's perspective, there's a whole other level of learning and understanding those lessons that you don't see the first run through. And even if Absolutely. you- a second or third time, then you see even more. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a very interesting thing to learn, having been through three different traditions myself and taught in all of these traditions. When I went through them as the student and having gone through them as the teacher several times, you, um, you kind of learn, oh, you know, I kind of wish I'd done this when I was a student, or I wish I was aware of this as a student. And so when I picked up on some of that, when I came around to teaching, like with my current tradition, I made sure that my students paid a little extra attention to this moment. Um, so, Very good. 
they could kind of like, you know, absorb it a little bit more so that when they get perhaps to the point where I am now, should that happen, then they can also be aware of, you know, highlighting it for their students or anything that they themselves kind of wish they paid a little more attention to. Um, but my tradition, mm -hmm. you know, there's a pretty sharp learning curve too. It's a, it's a rough thing to get through for some folks because we, training is four years and some folks, mm -hmm. that's kind of hard to, you know, four years is like going to college. Yeah. It's a lot of your life. So. That's just as a student. Yeah. <laughs> so then you go through and uh, trying to teach somebody that's four years of the teacher's life now also being dedicated to that student. So. And if you have students that are staggered, that four years turns to eight years. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Time flies. So tell us a little bit more about you. Outside the Corellian tradition, who are you? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, have, having, having been in this position my entire adult life, it's a hard question to answer. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I can make an answer to it. Um, uh, but I'm not sure where that answer is entirely going to lead. But, you know, I, I love movies. I love artwork. Uh, I love history. History is my great love. And my first love was ancient Egypt. Mm. Um, and I could not, I, I was already in love with ancient Egypt well before I could read and write, although I, 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 it was not entirely an accident. My, my mother kind of seeded that, mm. but, um, um, I would say that most of my enjoyment really does come from learning and researching. Uh, but as I say, I also enjoy movies. I enjoy, um, I've come to enjoy music and I tend to enjoy not necessarily the, the performers who would be best known. Um, I always enjoyed pagan themed music. Um, but, um, I found that YouTube has exposed me to some interesting other, other types of performers. Like who? Um, um, I'm very fond of Nick Matera who does a lot of Disney songs, but many other things as well. I'm very fond of um, Julian Neal, who is a French performer. Um, he does, one of the things he does is both standard and popular songs in barbershop quartet fashion. Neat. Um, it's very interesting. He also does uh, a selection of European songs uh, that are holiday themed and otherwise, which I find fascinating. And both of those artists, uh, as well, well, both of those artists have a very wide vocal range, and it's not uncommon that they will they will do um, four different parts and four different octaves put together to form their music. Um, a lot, but not all of it is a cappella, mm. uh, and it, it's very fascinating to watch. Uh, I also enjoy Peter Holland's. Um, there's also a performer who goes by the name of Artemis, that was formerly Miss Elena House, uh, who is a, a, an operatic soprano who does beautiful music. Um, at the time that she started, she was 16, and she was doing, doing these beautiful operatic pieces. Um, I enjoy um, all forms of artwork. Um, 
I enjoy animation, but um, if you if you look at the first degree videos, there's quite a bit of animation in them. Oh. Uh, I'm also um, also working on a stop motion animation unrelated to metaphysics, which uh, we'll see how that goes. That sounds uh, fun. I haven't done a piece. Of, I haven't done a piece of stop motion animation in many many years. Uh, but I'm attempting to put together an animated version of Edgar Allan Poe's Lynchia, which oh, um, should be interesting. I look forward to and, it. Will, will that be available when you're finished with it? Can I yes. check it out? Awesome. I expect it will be at least another year, however, because it's a slow-going process, especially when you're also doing everything else. One of the things I'm doing now is, is filming the second-degree lessons, um, not quite a decade after I filmed the first degree. Um, and that's a very time-consuming process also. I, um, well, and, and, I mean, in terms of, of things that um, are, are me separate from uh, Corellianism, these, these, are, these are some examples. I, I also am very fond of Kabuki um, and sometimes watch Kabuki uh, on YouTube. I watch a lot of YouTube. <laughs> YouTube's pretty fun. Yeah, easy to go down a thing. rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I've had that happen. Um, I, um, I, I I tend to enjoy all forms of creativity, and I, I try to employ that in my manner of dress. Um, I love putting together the different colors and patterns. Um, when making an appearance or making a video, particularly. Uh, and I find that to be a creative outlet. Nice. And um, I'm not sure what else to say. I, um, it's been an interesting life. No, it, it sounds like you've found things that you enjoy doing, and it sounds like you really enjoy the arts, which is, nobody can fault you for that, you know? I first began drawing specifically when I was about three years old. Um, I probably had, had started in, in a um, less formal way earlier. I don't know. I don't remember that. But I remember my father, who also had a background as an artist, uh, um, okay. kind of getting me started in that at that age. I don't remember a lot about it, but I, I remember the specific incident. Uh, his artwork was very different from my artwork, but he was a Capricorn and I'm a Gemini. So, uh, his artwork was very, how can I put it, very um, maybe concrete. It, it, it was very um, realistic. Maybe that's a good word. Okay. In his youth. Um, in his old age, he specialized in pornographic cartoons. Which, um, <laughs> go figure. But in his youth, he produced very beautiful, highly detailed artwork that depicted exactly what he saw, as opposed to my artwork, which tends to be very stylized and um, not quite so tied to... Um, in fact, actually, it's hard for me to draw something just looking at it. I tend to draw because I conceptualize it. So I have, the, the model I'm actually using is in my head. Although I did eventually learn to draw by sight, but um, it was af after I was already moderately well known as an artist in uh, in certain certain communities. 
At one time, I did a lot of artwork for uh, science fiction fandom as well, but that was back in the 70s. Nice. Well, in, into the early 80s. Um, so, there you go. Nice. Thank you. I don't know how many people actually know that about you. Uh, not very many, I don't imagine. And this, this plays out also in, in my approach to certain things in, in the spiritual world. For example, altars. I tend to think that all, an altar should be a thing of beauty. And uh, when I create an altar, particularly for a public ritual uh, or for a video purpose, I pay very much, uh, very close attention to what it looks like. And I tend to prefer, um, I tend to prefer, prefer uncluttered altars. Uh, I, I know a lot of people put every, every magical item they own on their altar at once, which is fine. Um, but I personally tend to prefer a very focused altar that switches out often. Um, I, um, but that's, that's, a, well, I would attribute that in part to being a Gemini. I, I do like, um, to keep, keep switching things up visually. When I did the first degree lessons, the altars that I used relied very heavily on, um, on glass items, partly because it's what was available at that time. But I used a number of glass candlesticks, a number of, simple bowls and other items, um, paper candles, but also um, tea light candles, uh, to create a number of, of different altars, a different one for each lesson, um, but also very simple and very focused. And uh, that's very much how I tend to look at um, how I like to create an altar. Okay. What would be, shifting gears a little bit, Mm -hmm. What would be your best piece of advice to somebody who is new stepping on this path? Well, I could ask if you mean somebody stepping into the pagan path in general or into a path of, of high priesthood and leadership, but instead I'm just going to answer both. Okay. And to a person who's just becoming involved in the pagan world, my, my, uh, my best advice is to enjoy it to expose yourself to many different ways of being. Uh, don't let yourself get pigeonholed immediately because this is a very wide, diverse community that offers something for everyone. Um, and enjoy. It, it's a, it, um, it, can, it can be a beautiful, beautiful experience. And I think the other piece of advice I would give that person just starting out is do not be... Do not let other people's opinions um, take the place of your own decisions. Uh, if someone tells you they don't like what you're doing, that really isn't their business. Unless, unless for some reason it is, but, it, but there are very few reasons that it would be. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you're drawn to something, have a look at it. Um, what the, the piece of advice I don't give that most people do, most people say, read everything you can read. That is not my advice. For one thing, a lot of times, if you read everything you can read, you'll get a very distorted view of what the reality of the community is. My advice is go out and experience it. Meet people. You can do that now online. Uh, so ge even being geographically isolated is not um, a prohibition against actually meeting and, interac and interacting with the community. And you'll learn far more by doing that 
first than by reading first um, because many of the books are very, very much from just that person's point of view and isn't necessarily what you're going to find in the real world. The real world is much more diverse, much more exciting um, in both good and bad ways. And I think the, the other thing I would say is watch out for, for toxic people, but that's true in any community. I agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would not, um, I would not say that we have more toxicity in our community uh, because I've seen other communities that have more than we do, but we do certainly have some toxic people and you, and you should avoid them. Now for the person who's becoming or, or seeking to become high priesthood and uh, further leadership, I think my, my biggest um, piece of advice is don't sweat the small stuff. Mm. Um, pick your battles, pay attention to what's important um, and don't be drawn off of it by, by minutia. Um, it's very easy to, um, to lose your sense of proportion, but very important to keep it. Um, and I think that would be my primary advice. And, and again, be patient, let things take their time. Um, and I think that that often will make you happier than, uh, than not. And there certainly is lots of other advice I can give, but that would be, those would be the biggest things that I would say. And those are both great pieces of advice. Well, I would also like to, you know, remind that if you seek to be a high priest or high priestess, there's a level of responsibility that comes with that. It isn't Mm -hmm. just, some people think that by having that title, you now have great power and control. I find absolutely. Well, you bring up a very interesting point. Um, and if, if someone were wanting, if someone's really trying to be in a position of leadership, one of the things you must remember is having a title doesn't actually give you power. Right. It doesn't actually give you anything uh, except a chance. Because for a little while, just because you have the title, people may pay attention to you. But if you don't use it properly, they will not stay. Um, some of the, some of the people who are in greatest positions of leadership don't necessarily have those official titles. What they have is influence. What they have is a knowledge of how to interact with people and a willingness to do what needs to be done. And that does not always come attached to an office or a title. And many people who have the offices and title don't do those things that give actual influence. And they wonder why they don't have the influence. Uh, but it's because they, they are not behaving as leadership. And there are a lot of things that go into that. And you know, I mentioned earlier, we've got chapters in second and third degree on how to, how to do this. Um, but, you know, just, just having a coronet on your head means nothing. And um, except that it will, it will open the door a little bit. Mm-hmm. But if you cannot go through that door, it, it doesn't end up meaning much. And you see... You, I don't know about now, because I see less of it now, but in the past, there were a lot, a lot of bitter people who thought they should, they should be the great high, high queen or high king and could not understand why they were not, when the simple truth is that they, they didn't have a clue of what they were doing. Um, and, um, and they caused a lot of havoc because they felt they'd been cheated out of the power they thought they should have, which in fact they had no, no, no clue 
even of what they should have been aiming for, because power isn't it. Power, power or influence for a responsible person are just tools that you use to do what needs to be done. Um, and you know, the, way that, the way that I tend to define high priesthood is that you're the person who has to sweep up the room when the event is done. Um, it's, not, um, it's not the person sitting on a throne somewhere eating grapes. Not usually. <laughs> well, there are yeah. people who try that, but they usually don't get very far. Sometimes they do, I guess, but uh, only, in, only in small little corners because most people, well, how can I put it? If you don't know how to actually run things, um, all of the pretty crowns in the world aren't going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And um, when it comes to running things, you have to, you, there, there are a lot of things you have to understand, many of which have nothing to do with metaphysics, and uh, most of which have nothing to do um, well, certainly nothing to do with self-aggrandizement. And, and there are people who pursue high priesthood for the purpose of self-aggrandizement. And like I say, they usually hit a wall because that's not what it's about. It's about service. And if you're not, you're not serving your community, uh, they're not going to be looking at you as high priesthood. And some people who are not high priesthood but are serving their community are still looked at as major leadership. Mm-hmm. I think that's great because it's really about the work and whether you're doing it. And yes, it's nice if you have cool robes, but, <laughs> uh, and they do serve a purpose, but you know, this, com- this comes down to, to how I, how I look at things. Corellians have very elaborate robes, but we don't have them make ourselves look impressive. We have them because they serve a purpose and the purpose, they help to create a sense of cohesion and, and belonging to, to one tradition, they help to identify at an event who you can ask a question to and expect a good answer because the, the, the more layers they've got, the more likely they can give you the information you need. And they also are very good for outreach into the wider community because they, they speak a visual language people understand. If you were to go to the average Corellian temple ceremony, people are going to be wearing whatever they're wearing on the street. Uh, but the big ceremonies we bring the robes out for because they serve those purposes. Um, and if they did not serve those purposes, there'd be no point in them. Because just looking pretty is not a, not not well. It can be a good enough reason, but not for not for um, for every purpose. There's nothing wrong with looking pretty, but um, it's not a well. I guess for some people it's a goal, but I would not consider that a good goal. Well, having attended. Um... Parliament of the World's Religions now twice with mm-hmm. your uh, with your group, you guys definitely have a presence when the group of you are walking into uh, one of the um, one of the uh, either the opening ceremony or one of the uh, speaking engagements, uh, and as a group you all file in and sit together. You definitely have a presence. People pay attention. Um, it's uh, for me. It's 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 quite a privilege just to be hanging out with your group because you are all such an in, uh, enjoyable crowd to be with. Um, Thank you. Especially well, we're always large, happy when you're with. Us. Thank you. Uh, it's especially when you're at such a large, somewhat intimidating event because it's so overwhelming. The amount yeah. of people. 
at how many people were at Parliament? Ten thousand. I th I think it was in that number, yeah, in the, in that range. Yeah, the it's a huge event. This last one was just the one in Ontario was also very large space, um, yeah, very spread out. I mean, and oddly constructed. Uh, um, in terms of where they put their elevators and so forth. Oh, yes, physically the building was an interesting location. Um, a lot of walking. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not, I'm not always good at walking. And uh, some of our other people have that problem as well. So we were navigating the elevators a lot and um, they were just interestingly placed, that's all I can say. Yeah, there was, I mean, even with the elevators, there was, quite a substantial amount of walking distance. And this particular one, I did have to purchase a cane while I was in Canada. Yeah. Um, I was having trouble walking that particular time. But- um, Oh, you know, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, There's I'm a little bit of a now. lag in the phone, so I don't mean to talk over you. No, 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 it's okay. Um, yeah, but it was a, a wonderful 10 day experience for me. We, we, we very much, we've, we've enjoyed them very much. Uh, and as I say, we love it when you hang out with us. Um, and in fact, we, 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 lo we, love, um, we love meeting new people there. We love the interaction. Um, and overall, it's just an enjoyable experience. Um, it has its political side. Sure. But I don't know that you see that unless you are at the level of heading an organization. Um, and that's, that's good. But... Um, you, you bring up, we, we bring up an interesting point that uh, might be worth mentioning, and that is that um, I think one of the things our community does not always take into account in the way that it should uh, is the needs of our disabled members. And um, in talking about walking, uh, in our tradition, we've had a number of people who have mobility issues. And um, this uh, is one of the reasons why we don't do a lot of camping types of events. We, we do the hotels. Uh, our, our late first elder, uh, Lady Windy, um, had spina bifida, and um, she got around very well, but it could be challenging. And um, I, I, I've walked with a cane on and off since I was 18, 18 years old. Um, we have other people who uh, have been in wheelchairs, um, and various other disabilities. And uh, sometimes people forget that people in the community are not all um, able to do certain things. For example, um, at the parliament, there was a, a procession from a bookstore to a park, oh, yes. which was a, a beautiful procession, uh, but it was moving too fast for, for some of the people with mobility issues. Um, and uh, Lady Selena and I were kind of at the back and um, luckily, a few people people would slow up so we could catch up periodically. But um, uh, it was a beautiful event. But um, if it had been just a little slower, it would have been better for us old people. Um, when you mention Lady Selena, you mean Selena Fox? Yes. Okay. Um, a wonderful person, and not 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 a, not enough good things in the world that I could say about her. I have to agree. Um, and, you know, Pete Pathfinder, when I went out in 2004 as part of the Witches Across America tour to, uh, to visit the Aquarian Tabernacle headquarters, 
which was, although I had known him for, well, since, since, since the early 80s, it was the first time we uh, had met in person. We'd known each other through correspondence and telephone uh, and later internet. But he was showing me the headquarters, and they have a beautiful headquarters in, in Index, Washington. And he showed me the ritual circle, and uh, it is surrounded by benches, very elegant little benches. And he said, you know, when I was younger, I thought you should always stand through rituals. But now that I'm in my 70s, <laughs> I've learned that it's good to have seated. <laughs> and I think this is something that uh, is good to bear in mind. Uh, we often um, will provide seating for people because we recognize that many of our people are not young. Many of our people have various disabilities, and this is good. Um, it, um, I think it's something that we were, we were asking advice. I might give someone who was aspiring to leadership. I would, I would say remember the inclusive nature of our community is another piece of advice I would give them. Um, one, of the area, one of the areas I think we need more resources are for people who have um, um, visual or, or hearing disabilities. Um, we have some resources, but not nearly enough. And um, it, it's much easier now to close caption a video. I was a little appalled recently when I found out some of the, I, I thought I had set a permanent filter to always caption the videos uh, on Facebook and found out that it was not, not doing that. Mm. But I think I fixed it now. But I think that, that doing things like closed captioning are very, very important uh, in this day and age. At one time, it could be very difficult, uh, but it's not difficult now. And so I think that is something that we should pay more attention to. I agree. We, um, we have a number, a number of people who are uh, deaf or hard of hearing in our tradition. And this... this um, can provide challenges in a number of ways, including our normal initiatory forms, um, which have to, have to be adapted for, for people who have um, difficulty with hearing, but we, we, we do adapt them. And I think that's very important. Um, they don't really have to be adapted for, for people who have mobility problems, because there's not a lot of mobility, but uh, for hearing problems, um, it can be a thing. And we, we have worked with that, and I think um, I, I think I think I think all the large traditions who wish to maintain their relevance need to be thinking in those terms. That's a good point. You know, it's it's a very different world than it was 40 years ago, let alone 50. And um, one one of the worst mistakes that one can make is not adapting to the changes in society, and um, I think sometimes that's difficult, and I will agree that, that, that not every change is something one should adapt to, um, but the things we're discussing are things that one should adapt to, and I, I think that um, it's very important if you're heading an organization, uh, even if you're not able to make the adaptation yet, to have your mind on it for the future, um, because we are a very not only a very diverse community, but a very diverse society. And, um, and what we must be able to reflect that if we wish to have a future. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. I hope that uh, more organizations take that into consideration uh, in general. 
because I think our community will only improve by being more I, inclusive. I, I yes. Well, you have any additional questions, sir? I do not have any additional questions. I just made a note to myself to actually transcribe our podcast. I was going to ask you to do that. So, <laughs> so uh, very good. We will be adding that to our site for people who are uh, hard of hearing. They'll at least be able to see what we're talking about. I'm hoping that it's not going to be too bad for well, us. Well, luckily we're in the early phase of this podcast, so hopefully yeah. we can get that taken care of now, so we can set up for future. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm very glad that that certain platforms are now offering that ability in an automatic sort of way. I realize that automatic translation is not always the best, true. but sometimes it's the best you can do. Mm -hmm. like my, my daily vlogs, which are not especially daily at the moment, but they're done off the cuff. So there's no script to put in, um, and they would literally have to be transcribed, but because I can set it to closed captioning, um, it will generate the subtitles on its own, Right, and that is something I can do. Nice. Yeah, and YouTube's got some pretty decent algorithms in place. Uh, one of the ones that I noticed, it doesn't work for us in our use case like this. Um, mm -hmm. If we had it set up where we were uh, doing normal recordings, but uh, Google actually has a voice transcribe option. Oh, okay. So while it's no, listening cool. to what you're doing, it will actually uh, type it out for you. Okay. So that was kind of a cool That's wonderful. But that, that's something that we'll look to do as well to be inclusive to the rest of the community. Thank you for being, uh, reminding us on that. Yep. <laughs> well, you know, this ties back into a subject we talked about earlier, which is embracing technology. And, you know, back in the day, a lot of pagans were anti-technology. Some of them still um, are. Yeah, there's still a fair number that well, still. Yeah, but we can, we can kind of ignore them because they're not going to last. <laughs> uh, I hate to be that blunt, but mark my words, it's what you're going to see. Um, but um, it makes a tremendous difference to use the tools as they become available. Um, and, you know, I, I am a great believer in technology. We have, um, within our tradition, we have a group of techno-mages who are dedicated to metaphysics and technology. Um, we um, are very big on, on using what technology makes available, and also on the belief that it would not be there if it were not meant to be used. Um, that, that spirit has placed this here as part of um, the, ongoing, the, the ongoing voyage of spirit, for want of a better word for it, and that if we were meant to be in the Middle Ages, that's where we'd be. Um, but... Um, so we, we've always believed in technology. We've always believed in embracing what is possible, uh, which, is, which at one time was a very unusual point of view. It's not so unusual now, but you know, go back a few years, and that was very odd. Mm. Um, the other, and you know, the same with the conscious mind. Um, if you go back toward the 80s, a lot of metaphysical types, pagan and otherwise, were all about what you feel your emotions, um, overcoming the conscious mind, which had its place because a lot of people were, were, were focused on mind to the exclusion of emotions, which is not good. 
but the mind also is vitally important. The mind is how, how we understand our experience of the physical. Um, and so in writing many, many items over the years, I, I've tried to point out um, that you absolutely want to involve both mind and emotion. Uh, and one to the exclusion of the other is not good. And it's the same, I think, with technology um, and the natural world, that they both are part of our experience. And to just pretend one isn't there is a bad idea. Mm. Well, that is a good point in itself. Because even still today, we still have people who value one or, over the other. Uh, yes, absolutely. It, it's it's actually I've seen a few memes on Facebook to that effect, where it's like you've got the super uh, Wiccan like love be to all and then you've got uh pagans and they're all smothering the heathen <laughs> it's usually like cats two that are like laying on top of a third yeah but it, it's 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 true you can't have true balance without mind and emotion exactly well i appreciate so dearly that you took time today to speak with us. Um, well, I'm, I'm very glad that, that you had me. I, uh, I know that there's an event coming up that I think isn't until next year that I will get to see you at, I hope. Um, unless, I, unless I get to see you sooner. I know I keep, uh, I keep wanting to come out uh, to go stay with, uh, well, and to go visit you guys out in Florida. That would be wonderful. I would, uh, it's... Winter is an excellent time to visit Florida. Is it? Okay. Uh, well, only... although you live in California, so, so if you lived in Illinois, winter is a, a great time oh. to get away. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually only been in Florida during the summer. It's not fun. Oh, <laughs> super heat. Uh, it's much nicer in the winter. Yeah, I tend to be there during hurricane season for some unknown reason. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and the amount of bugs traveling across state to get over there is uh, also not a fun experience. But yeah. uh, uh, I, maybe going in the winter would be a nice change of pace. Mm. I, th I think you might enjoy it. Uh, but, I don't know that you'd find the, the climate so terribly different from where you are. Um, maybe. But, but uh, here, here in the Jacksonville area, by my Illinois standards, we, we don't have much of a winter but it's much cooler than the summer. And it, it, I mean, it can, it can get into um, slightly lower temperatures, but um, it's mostly pretty temperate, I think. Mm -hmm. And you can still do all the, uh, most of the fun things you would do in the summer, but without the 110 degree days. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not every day. Well, again, thank you so very much. Um, I, I greatly appreciate that you took the time because you've interviewed me a number of times. So it's That's true. Uh, I'm I'm glad to be able to kind of return the favor. Uh, and you. Well, I'm I'm very happy to be interviewed. Oh, what do you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I want to thank you as somebody who's new to the path, getting a chance to meet you. That uh, was a great opportunity for me. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And it's very nice to meet you.